the week of November 28th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 563, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. 98, 99, oh, you're, 100. You're doing sit-ups. <sighs> you're doing sit-ups. Okay, let's go. I am, I am indeed. I am indeed. I got the call from Channing Tatum just this, just this morning, man. Very excited. Magic Mike is back. Oh, we are oh, back. Okay. So Magic Mike's Last Dance, it's happening only on HBO Max, which I don't get because people like to go to the movies to see hot men working out and, you know, stripping, but, but whatever they want, I'm there. They call me up. I am ready for Soderbergh and Channing Tatum. We're making another Magic Mike movie, the third in a, what is now a trilogy. I have some, I'm very um, excited. Th- this just in, um, news for yeah. you and I, I'm getting it from what? my invisible earpiece here. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. it, that, that's not the mic they're looking for. You're you're not the mic you're you, looking for. I guess I should say. But I'm I'm Mike and I'm I'm pretty magic. <laughs> well, I I think they 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 they're going to stick with Tatum, I think. On this one. No, 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 I'm with Tatum. I'm right there next to him. Oh, I, okay. No, no, we're all together. Uh, anyway, so that's I'm looking forward to that and I was looking forward to a wedding in South Africa. I thought maybe I'd miss 3 weeks in a row, but the good news is I'm not going to South Africa. I won't be going to that wedding, so we won't necessarily miss 3 weeks in a row. The bad news is the entire world is shutting down again. Yes. Now, you know, you said that uh, we didn't mention that your name was Mike or Michael. We did not yeah. say who you really were. You're Michael Giltz. Oh, I'm, I'm Michael Giltz in Birmingham, Alabama, not South Africa, not Cape Town, not uh, I forget what the name of the town is where I'm heading. It's in the wine country uh, because of this moronic variant, because Omicron also can be turned into the word moronic if you just jumble the letters up. Oh, OK. I was be- wondering where be- you got that from. Be- before we panic, of course. We'll see how well the vaccines work against it. We know what to do. They're already working on, uh, you know, a vaccine and booster variant to tweak the ones that they have. So we don't, you know, a stock should not be falling 80%. People should not be yelling and screaming. Do what you've always been doing. Get a vaccination, get a booster, wear masks, be smart, and we can deal with this. It doesn't have to be the end of the world. The sooner we get ourselves and the rest of the world vaccinated, the fewer variants there will be, by the way. So everybody get vaccinated and let's make sure we make the tech available so lots of other countries can get their people vaccinated as well. Otherwise, we'll keep dealing with this for years to come. Yeah, you know, when this first started, uh, all my research, the modest amount I did, I realized, oh, wow, the 1918 pandemic went on until 1922. And sure enough, uh, that's exactly what everybody's saying now. Like, look, it's a four-year cycle. As you can see, each wave gets a little different. No, no, I have not read anybody say it's a four-year cycle. We got a vaccine quicker than anybody in history. Yo, that is months. true. That right. is true. Yes. This could be something that just fades away and disappears. And there's no time frame, like four years or two years or seven years, or it could become just part of life, like the influenza vaccine. And look, we might get a much better vaccine for the influenza, the annual flu shot. We might get something a lot better than that, thanks to mRNA. But you know, there's no like, oh, this is going to take four years and then we'll be done. There's no such time frame. It's just, it could fade away and just disappear. It could become a regular thing. You got to get an annual booster shot, just like yeah. you do for the flu. You know, we'll find out. We'll follow the science. But I do know that we we call the show Showbiz Sandbox, but in fact, we've renamed ourselves Bitcoin, haven't we? Yes, I mean, Bitcoin.com slash crypto. Yeah, crypto. Yes, crypto yes, anything. Yes. Crypto. The Staples crypto, Center crypto. is renaming itself crypto. Yes, crypto.com. Because- and literally, 
Los Angeles lost its mind. So the Staples Center opened in 1999 with The Boss. And by The Boss, of course, I mean Bruce Springsteen. He did a show in there. He did a week's worth of shows, uh, his reunion tour, and he literally made fun of it every single night from the stage. Because he, <laughs> he looked out and it was one of the first arenas in the United States that had all of those layers of you know, luxury suites. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah. oh, looks like a birthday cake out there. I can barely see you guys. He never played there again and he Man. said at the time he said he opened the arena and then he said i will never be back uh and he never has gone back did, did he hate the acoustics or or he, he hated the, the he sky hated boxes sticks he really hated the sky boxes that was really i like the sky boxes let the wealthy people stay up there and let regular folk be down front i think sky boxes are great then you have the people who actually like the music down front where they can enjoy. Otherwise, you get all the fat cats sitting there and they sit on their hands and they're just sort of drinking and talking and they don't care that much. So I'm all for the skyboxes. But oh well, well, the, sta the Staples Center was named after Staples, which is an office supply store here in the United States. Although, do people still go in? I guess they do. I guess do. they do. Uh, and and then, of course, I guess it was a 20 year naming cycle and, and now the 20 year contract is over and they're selling it to crypto.com because crypto is going to be around in 20 years, maybe. We hope, I guess. I don't know. We, we certainly hope so. And this show will be around in 20 years. What are we going to talk about this week? Not this particular episode. And and in fact, later on during this episode, we're going to find out just how long this show has been going on. Sadly, stay tuned for that. You'll understand what I'm talking about. This week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are still recovering from our turkey comas because it was Thanksgiving here in the United States. But that won't stop us from delivering the news, modest as it may be. People did go to the well, they went to the movies where they created box office and we'll have the worldwide results, not to mention a glimpse into China's five-year plan for market domination. Hint, they're building more cinemas. I don't know where they're going to put them. Kevin Spacey had some bad news in arbitration. He was fired from House of Cards and get this, he has to fork over tens of millions of dollars. Ouch. On the bright side, the Grammy nominations came out and the results were as puzzling and frustrating and fun as ever. Here's a suggestion, by the way, for the Grammys. Make John Batiste the host. Not only nominated, but the host. Why not? He's yeah, already he, may, he may not he may not win a lot of Grammys, so give right. him something. Give him something. Yeah. On Inside Baseball, we've got a grab bag of news on streaming because streaming is all anyone can talk about these days. Streaming, Literally. Streaming, streaming, streaming. Netflix streaming. is bigger than Disney. Netflix is bigger than this. Netflix is bigger than that. It's like unbelievable how much people are talking about streaming. Of course, during big de big deal. Or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz. He's going to fill us in on last week's box office, although apparently he's going to leave South Africa out just for, you know. Just because I'm annoyed. That's yeah. right. We're looking at box office around the world for the week ending November 28th. We pull information from Comscore and all the other sources. And the number one movie around the world is Disney's Encanto. $70 million on its opening week. I'm a guy who sees the glass half full. I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of bitching and moaning about, well, this Thanksgiving weekend here in the U.S., it's a, a big weekend for going to the movies. It is. And Canto did well, but not as big as it should have. House of Gucci did well and brought in adults back to the movie theaters. That made $35 million in its opening week. Yeah, but I don't know what they thought. It should be bigger? I, I don't know. Uh, to me, we've got... You know, the James Bond film is now like the third or the second highest grossing James Bond film of all time. That's amazing amidst a pandemic. That's amazing amidst worldwide shutdowns and reopenings yeah. and people being a little nervous. Keep so, in mind, Russia, the, the cinemas are closed in Russia. 
Yeah. I mean, you're making money. You know, these are movies that can actually become profitable just from box office and alone again. That's pretty great. Well, um, so- I can tell you this. I will remember the name Encanto. And here's why. Mm-hmm. It was in movie theaters. It got a lot of positive buzz, a lot of positive word of mouth. I know the the, the hemming and hawing you're talking about is is the fact that, you know, Wreck-It Ralph breaks the internet, uh, which was a movie that did not get good reviews, made $80 million in its opening weekend over the same weekend. And here you have Encanto, a movie that is getting good reviews and people are talking positively about getting a $40 million opening here domestically in the United States. So I can see the hemming and hawing, yet at the same time, I'm going to go see Encanto in the movie theater. I had no plans to do that. Zero. I'm going to make a point of going to see that movie in the movie theater. Well, good. Well, of course, you're a big industry supporter of movies, and that's a little different, but I agree. We went to the movies over Thanksgiving holiday. I had a great Thanksgiving, by the way. How about you? I went to Nashville, visited my friends. We had a lot of fun. We went to see the French Dispatch, which I enjoyed thoroughly. If you like Wes Anderson, you're sure as hell going to like this movie. Uh, I thought maybe it was too spot on. You know, he's got such a New Yorker sensibility. I thought maybe, you know, Wes Anderson is better off doing something like high school or, you know, dogs on an island off Japan, things that you don't expect to have a New Yorker sensibility. In this case, doing a story about a mythical New Yorker magazine in its glory days felt a little too, you know, redundant. And But no, I, I found it thoroughly delightful. Yeah, I, I didn't get to go to the movies, although I, I went to Napa Valley and I stayed in a hotel that was located across from the Century uh, Napa, like, you know, the Cinemark in, in, in mm-hmm. Napa. And there it was the whole time. Couldn't go see a movie because I was too busy with family and everything. And did you enjoy eating? Yes, I did enjoy eating. And I also enjoyed India Sweets and Spices, which I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I was looking mm-hmm. forward to seeing. And uh, Aaliyah Kapoor, man, I really liked her. She is uh, she is really good. I, I got it. I got it. Uh, is it one of the best films of the year? Ah, one of the best? No, no. I mean, it's definitely up there, but not, not, it's not that kind of movie. It's, it's, it's not a, you know, big, serious, you know, Jane Campion type movie. It's a, it's a lovely, uh, dramedy. I would say. All right. Well, back to the box office. Encanto made $70 million. Ghostbusters Afterlife, that got pretty mixed reviews, but it held well. It made $56 million this week. It's at $116 million worldwide. Be Somebody is a Chinese period mystery. Did that come out three weeks ago? Because we're talking about some movies. I covered movies that came out last week. If you follow us on Facebook, I included last week's box office charts. I hope you check that out if you follow us there. Be Somebody made another $36 million this week. It's at just under $100 million. Then Lady Gaga came out with her Russian accent in an Italian film. I don't know why, but House of Gucci made $35 million. And the Gucci family just released a press release saying, this is outrageous. I can't believe you've depicted us this way. We're far worse than what you've shown on screen. Wait, they said the the last part? No, 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 they didn't say that. (laughs) Uh, Eternals, uh, that made $32 million. That's at $370 million worldwide. Is Again, that considered that would, a hit? I mean, come on, three hundred seventy well, million dollars in, in pandemic era. I would say yes. Again, this movie is not going to get to six, seven hundred million dollars. It didn't get the biggest market in the world right now. China has been closed to it, but it's making four hundred million dollars. Probably going to top out at maybe five hundred million dollars. It would have made nothing if you went straight to DVD or you know straight to streaming. So, I, I, to me, it just seems like a win. Well, of yeah, course, that's to not spend the money way they, to open it. Yeah. Well, they should. If they put it just straight on Disney Plus only, they've given up half a billion dollars. 
Yeah. Okay, costs a hundred million dollars to release it, but isn't that better? Making it a spectacle, making it an event, letting people see it in the theater, then it comes to your to your TV. I think it is. Venom, let there be carnage. That's a hit. Twenty-five million dollars this week. It's at four hundred and seventy million dollars worldwide. A hit from box office alone. Well, let's no talk about to- that for a second. Four seventy okay. for Venom, huge hit. Yeah, right. Now, granted, well, it costs about one hundred and ten million dollars right. to make. It costs less, uh, and you got. You got the other one at 370. They're only $100 million apart. And guess what? Their budgets are $100 million apart. Right. $90 million. Yes, we understand. Eternals cost $200 million. So So, our very rough rule of thumb is to be seen as a hit from box office alone. And remember, they make a lot of money in other areas. It's not just box office. But Eternals, you'd want it to make about $600 million before you would say, okay, this is a flat out and out, no question about it hit. Okay. Right? yeah. Yeah. $600 $600 million Well, that's what we've been okay. saying for, for years now on the show. So I'm not listening feel, to myself. What can I say? If you feel differently, you really should say something. <laughs> All right. Well, so below that is No Time to Die, the Bond film. That made $19 million this week. It's at $750 million worldwide. Is that a hit? I think so. $750 million. Look, there was only that one movie, uh, Spectre, that made a billion dollars, you know, made over a billion dollars. But I'm sure they wanted this to reach a billion dollars. It would have been nice if it reached a billion dollars. It made $753 million. And yes, they barely broke even on this movie because, of course. No, and yeah, they're not breaking even at the box office, of course, because they think maybe it costs $300 million to make. And everybody says, well, look, this needed to gross at least $900 million just to be seen as a hit from box office alone. The studio immediately said, no, 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 this movie is making lots of money. It's like, make up your minds. They love to say movies are flops when it comes to accounting, but then they're very angry if you say their $300 million movie isn't a hit just from box office alone. But yeah, it's a very positive, good response. And what was the option? wait another year or two to release it? I don't think that was reasonable. No. I think it was a good time to release it. You want to keep the ecosystem alive. This isn't just studios on their own. You want theaters to be alive next year and a year after that. You better give them some product. I think that's a win for everybody. Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City is more of a flop for everybody, but it only costs $25 million to make. Poor reviews, and it opened to $14 million. In China, we have a suspense film. It's a Chinese remake of a Korean remake of a Spanish film. In the Spanish original, a woman is at home and being stalked by somebody and nobody will believe her. The whole movie is told from the perspective of the person who's doing the stalking. In the Korean remake, it's done from the perspective of the woman who is being stalked. And in the Chinese remake, it does the same thing. It presents it from the perspective of the woman. It's called Door Lock. And it made a lot of money last week, and this week it held up pretty well, made another $12 million. It's at $44 million and counting. Kind of funny how these, these movies bounce all over the world, remakes into remakes into different spins and different countries and different cultures. Cool to see. A lot of movies from other countries are playing well in China. This one just happens to be a remake. Clifford the Big Red Dog has a sequel, Greenlit. It made $9 million this week. It's at $43 million and counting. It's also on Paramount Plus at the same time, and apparently they're happy with it. It costs about $65 million to make. It's nowhere near making $180 or $190 million worldwide, but it clicked for them, and they're happy. King Richard is not doing that well, at least commercially. Maybe critically, it's a success. Will Smith could still get an Oscar nomination for his performance as the father of Venus and Serena Williams. This tennis biopic made $9 million last week. It's at $17 million and counting. And then there's Dune. $7 million this week, 
$375 million worldwide, greenlit for a sequel, though it's it's a sequel, I should say, part two, though it's slowing down pretty dramatically. It's, it's mostly done, except they are going to bring it back to IMAX. It's coming back to IMAX on Friday because this is a spectacle, and they have one week where they've, they've maxed out on Ghostbusters Afterlife, I guess, and they've got a little slot there that they can feed back to Dune because they think more people will want to see Dune than Ghostbusters Afterlife, and then... They'll switch to some new movie come the holiday season. Boy, if you want to see a movie in IMAX, you got to jump fast, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I would say this movie is worth seeing in IMAX. Dune, that is. I don't know about Ghostbusters Afterlife. By the way, Ghostbusters Afterlife, I had a lot of fun in that movie. I thought that movie was a lot of fun. Oh, good. Okay, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, The beta like. The Battle at Lake Chongjin, that made another $6 million. That's at just under $900 million worldwide, virtually all of it from China. Huge success story. Uh, the biggest Chinese film, Chinese-made film of all time. And then there's The French Dispatch, the little movie that could. Timothy Chalamet is in Dune, a big-budget movie, and he's also got a very funny role with a ridiculous mustache in The French Dispatch. $5 million this week, $33 million and counting. The movie is chugging along. As is Licorice Pizza, another movie that's indicating the art house circuit is slowly coming back to life. If you make movies, people are ready. They're sort of tentatively coming out. The older audience has been the most resistant, but they turned out for the French Dispatch. They turned out to a degree for Spencer, the film about Diana, Princess of Wales. They're sort of showing up for Kenneth Branagh's film Belfast, which all old people love. (laughs) <laughs> I didn't think it was that good, but God bless him. Maybe it's an Oscar hopeful. And then there's Licorice Pizza, the new Paul Thomas Anderson film that burned it up with an 84,000 per screen average on just four screens. That's amazing. What a great per whoa, screen whoa, whoa, average. Whoa, whoa, well, I got to stop you right there, Michael. I've got to stop you. I've got to stop you. You know, a little thing happened on the way to the, to the movie theater, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhere at some point, they stopped calling it well, they do call it per theater average, but not per screen average. There's a big difference there. And here's the thing. A per screen is an actual auditorium. You sit down, there's a screen at the front, that's the screen. However, if you notice, all of the box office is given in per theater average or something else now, per location average. The PLA. PLA the P- yeah. I was reading down on there. Oh, the PLA. I'm like, the per location? What does that mean? So they're, now they've decided even if it's playing on 20 screens, we're only going to count that as one screen. Right. Well, that's that's BS. That's not a per screen average. Historically, a movie opens on 3,000 screens. It grosses X amount of dollars and you divide that X amount of dollars by 3,000. Not by, you know, 87 theater locations with 20 screens per look. No. If it, however many screens it, uh, it's on is how many screens you divide the box office gross by, and that gives you the per screen average. Suddenly, when did this change take place? This sort of, you know, they want to they wanna sort of fudge the numbers to make them as big as possible is what they want. They want to show a movie on seven screens, but say, wow, the per location average. Well, that's an entirely different beast. That's an okay number to share, but they should still be sharing the per screen average because that's what we've gone by for decades. So number well, one, we got to find out when did this that. change and two, none of this BS. Be <laughs> accurate and be specific. So a couple things. You asked me this before we began recording today. And yeah. I said, well, here's the thing. I do not know. I don't know. I do know this, that at some point during the history of this program, which we will find out later, has been a good 12 years. Uh, I was told by somebody, and I want to say it was somebody from Comscore, they said, listen, you got to stop calling it a per screen average. It's not a screen. It's 
a location. It's a theater. And they've so it could it. be on two screens at that theater. Like it might be a right. dual plex or it might be on 10 screens on a multiplex. Right. And so I stopped calling it a per screen average at that time. But then you asked me, when did it start? And I don't know, but I did write down, uh, that would make a very good, uh, research uh, paper. Celluloid junkie story. Yeah, uh, Don't ask me to write it. Don't <laughs> ask me to write it. <sighs> and, and and that's an inside joke between Michael and I because he wrote a very good... Uh, and multiple, which, multiple, multiple stories. Multiple drafts. With of, multiple versions of different... No, of, more than one story and multiple drafts of them and you delayed them for years. <laughs> Years. This was like before the pandemic when I wrote the first one. I think, That's how long it's been. I, I think actually I, we should delay them in, just for the for so that I could hear and watch Michael. <laughs> watch my head explode. So so did you look it up and find out? Because this is, ties into how long we've been doing the show. I believe. Uh, no, no, I, I no, oh, I did okay. I did not look it up in the. In the oh. Okay, so we don't know yet. We don't, we don't know, know yet. yet. Okay. No. Well, there you go. We do know that China has a five year plan. They have 77,000 screens. Is that the most for any one market in yes, the world? Yes, 100% right. yes. They're not done. They plan to expand to 100,000 screens. Now, we knew they had over-screened in certain areas. We knew there were government subsidies and people were opening up movie screens where there's no real demand, but the tax breaks made it a good idea. Just like they had too many, you know, junky little local theme parks slapped onto a mall because it gave them a good tax break. However, the China says there are lots of smaller cities. There is more room to grow. There will be enough density to support not a 10 screen or a 20 screen, but say a two screen. And their rule is that every new theater must have at least two screens and at least one of them will be devoted to what I'm going to call propaganda. Government endorsed films like perhaps the Battle of Lake Chongjin. And but, that is exactly you know, whether why. it's documentary yeah. or, or whatever, they're gonna have they want theaters in smaller cities that probably can support a cinema, but there will be at least two screens and at least one of them will be devoted to not Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh yeah. When we had right. uh, uh, the, you, the, we had the the heads of Warner Brothers Distribution on the CJ Cinema Summit recently, uh, uh, mm -hmm. just before Thanksgiving, and it is a problem the fact that it's very difficult to get a date in China. The theaters that you're seeing open up uh, in, the, in this extra twenty five thousand, they're going to be in very remote places, some of which could not sustain a, a theater. And what their theaters will be, it could be a school gymnasium that has a projector. Well, but we don't care about we, um, but we don't care because they won't generate a lot of money. It's okay to have a small screen no, absolutely. in a small town. Yeah. Absolutely. If, but but if it they is want to support that, whatever. So yeah, you said it exactly right. You said yeah. it. They are doing this because they get to send their message out through the cinema. Everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Yes, that is exactly right, right now. There is no US film, no Hollywood film scheduled for release in the Middle Kingdom. Now the Matrix Resurrections has been approved for China but it has not yet been scheduled. We assume that will happen before the end of the year. They've gone to great lengths. I'm sure Keanu has learned not to mention Taiwan. Don't say things about Fan Bing Bing. Don't mention tennis. Uh, if you're into tennis, you'll know there's a big scandal going there as well, along with the Me Too movement. Uh, and they're hoping they can get that movie released in China. The Matrix is not a big franchise there. The other movies happened before China was really strongly screened, but the movies have been seen widely, of course, on... Uh, 
on pirated media. And there's probably an appetite for that film. It seems right up their alley. Certainly one of the Chinese films that might be considered propaganda is Railway Heroes that opened last week. It's only at $14 million total, so it's doing pretty modestly, but it's kind of interesting. It's a World War II film about the communist underground resistance to the Japanese occupation in Shandong province. Now, Japan invaded and occupied China proper in 1937, arguably the start of the Second World War. This blows my brother's mind. He's like, what do you know? The World Second World start in 1930. I'm like, well, there are other parts of the world. Japan invaded China, 1937. Lots of people died. It's a world war, so it's not necessarily our perspective. It's not 1942. It could be, according to some historians, 1937. The Shandong countryside was the heart of resistance in that area. Shandong faced Japan's three alls policy. Kill all, burn all, and loot all. Ouch! Millions of civilians were killed over the eight years in Shandong in northern China, and this movie, Railway Heroes, is about the resistance movement in that part of the country. So, the movie's not tearing it up, but there's lots of stories to be told in China about uh, about uh, about the you know resistance against Japan, helping out in Korea, and I don't know. You know, everybody, you can't be can't keep China happy. You can't keep Netflix happy. Everybody's fighting with everybody. Poor Netflix. Well, in what France, do you mean you can't keep Netflix happy? All you got to do is show their movies in movie theaters. In, that's in Italy. right. In France, when Netflix tried to show movies in commercial cinemas, everybody complained and yelled and threatened to sue. But in Italy, they're complaining that Netflix isn't releasing them wide enough. The new Paolo Sorrentino film, an autobiographical flick called Hand of God, well reviewed in Cannes. It's opening in Italy on two. 250 screens but his last film because he's the biggest director right now in in italy probably in, in many ways his last film opened on 900 screens and a lot of theaters are complaining and kvetching why won't netflix give us a dcp what's the reason i mean it doesn't cost them a lot of extra money anymore right yeah yeah i mean certainly we know we understand france has distribution uh, laws on the books that they have to get rid of because if you if you screen on the you know if you stream something you gotta wait a year now maybe yeah. not two years now it's down to maybe just a year before you can show it on streaming <laughs> correct so show it in a movie theater you have a long time to wait before you can stream it in italy and frankly even the u.s and i'll get to the u.s in a moment it's i have no idea why they do not want to to you know have more screens i have a feeling it's because they just don't have the infrastructure in place to do but if they have screens. a dcp all they got to do is send it out right I yeah mean, well in the u.s of course, the major chains are like, yeah, we, we don't want to deal with you. Even that's changing, by the way, because Cinemark has said that they will they will work with Netflix on a title by title basis. What's wrong with Netflix? Bring it on, baby, they said, because they're desperate for product. Right. And and the mini majors, same thing. The the indies. So this might be a Lemley Theaters or a Landmark. They mm -hmm. are saying, no, no, we'll play it. The problem is. Every time I talk to a film buyer, they can't get the prints. And by prints, I do mean DCP. They can't, like Netflix will not send it to them. They just won't. And a lot it's of it has to do with- not their game, right? Yeah. They're, they, just, they're they, not interested. They don't have the infrastructure. They now are slowly getting that infrastructure. But also, they don't necessarily want people to know how much those movies are or aren't making. So- but if they want to keep their directors happy, and that's the and only that's reason the they're reason. releasing the movies in the first place, Correct. putting them on three screens for 10 days doesn't really make the director happy. No. They, and even if you're not reporting grosses, they like to know it's widely available and people are going to see it. Right. And that it's marketed. That's another thing. You know, you Yeah, they're not the marketing market. at all. Yeah. They don't care. They don't want to. But would, would they carry a Kevin Spacey film? 
<laughs> Would these theaters carry a Kevin Spacey film? Sure, I don't think they'd care. It's Kevin is, Space is mm-hmm. yeah. Well, yeah, actually, I think they probably would. And now, would oh, people yeah. go see it? I don't know. I don't think people have rejected him as an actor yet. Uh, he's just persona non grata. Who wants the grief of making a movie with him where you're going to have to answer a lot of questions about why? <laughs> so he went into arbitration. Obviously, he was fired a few years ago from House of Cards. Once credible allegations of sexual assault on much younger men and underage men and, 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 and other adult men came to the fore, both in the theater and film world, and of course on television. Uh, that all breakthrough, he became poisonous. You couldn't make a TV show with him. It would have you know, been untenable. So he was fired from House of Cards. But they say he broke his contract by his behavior. They always have morals clauses and things like that. And that case went to arbitration and he just was ruled against Kevin Spacey. He must stay $31 million for breaching his contract. Wow. That's doesn't that suck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a kind of amazing, isn't it? I mean, that's, uh, that's, uh, and it can't be any of the stuff that happened before he was, uh, contracted. In other words, all of the things, uh, that, well, no, that, your, your morals clause, I think if, if you've comes out that, you know, you've spent a lifetime eating babies, you know, for lunch, <laughs> I don't, well, I don't what, think what it has to dinner? happen Is that okay? literally on the set. I think, you know, at any point that that can be a bad thing. Well, there was well, plenty enough a, that happened after he signed that contract that they were I, I'm sure. I'm sure. So did you follow the Grammy nominations? You were away at Thanksgiving. It sort of came and went a little bit. Oh God, uh, yeah. Were you excited by them? Did you watch them? I did not watch them, but uh-huh. I was surprised by two things. John Baptiste, who I like. I love that guy. Do you? Oh, you mean just as a person? Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's a musician's musician. He really knows music. Went to Juilliard. He's a you know, jazz musician. So does, so does Paul Schaefer, but he shouldn't be the most nominated act of the year. Jean Baptiste is the biggest act in the world right now, according to the Grammys. The most nominations. This is for an album. Now, his score got a nomination or two, I guess. His yes. score for the movie Soul. Fair enough. That was well-reviewed. But his album was neither a commercial nor a critical hit. It's just oh, wow. one of those okay. people where, every, yeah, nobody cared about this album. It's well, not in anybody's best of the list. It's just everybody knows him and worked with him. And so this bland, indifferent album is suddenly treated as the biggest album in the world. Whereas last year, the biggest act in the world actually was The weekend, and he couldn't get arrested. And instead, they ignored him completely. So it's just, you well, know, the, the Grammys can't win for losing. Well, the Grammys fixed that this year by, by at the last minute, adding two additional albums of the year. Was it record of the year? And, and of course, that was so that they could, what they ultimately did was they gave those nominations to two of the most popular acts and albums. Who are? Taylor uh, Swift t- and? Uh, who was the other one? I just remember hearing Taylor Swift, and then my mind went blank. Was was it was it uh, was it Justin Bieber? I don't remember who the other no. one was that slipped in. They actually, the Times broke the story of what the last two albums were to slip in, but that's okay. You want the list to reflect the actual year. So if they said, oh, we got to include two more, otherwise we're going to be missing two of the biggest names around, that's exactly why you expand the list. But of course, you don't want them to play games and go, let's go to 13 so we can capture, you know, the, you know, it might have been Donda. It might have been uh, Kanye West's album, Donda. I think that's that what it was. The yeah. Other one. yeah, which is not that good an album. But anyway, a lot of stuff happened. Jay Z became the the most nominated artist ever passing Quincy Jones and Paul McCartney passed Quincy Jones too as well becoming the second most nominated artist ever 
The Weeknd did get nominations this year, even though he's boycotting the Grammys, because he's on songs and albums by other people and got nominated as part of those groups. So if someone else's album and song that he contributed to got nominated, he's recognized as well. And, you know, despite all the changes, expanding categories, doing this, doing that, the Grammys still look dumb. John Batista's you know, claimed as the biggest artist of the year. God help us if he wins. Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga got record and album of the year nominations. I quite liked their last album. This album isn't that good. Getting record of the year is just ridiculous. It's but don't, just, don't you think sometimes like the you know you don't win for the movie you made this year. You went for the movie you made the last time. But he, 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 got, he won album of the year for uh, for you know Unplugged and he oh, got okay. nominations. All right. you know, he, Tony Bennett has been nominated and acclaimed many many times times as of Lady Gaga. Doing it for this album seems crazy. On the bright side, ABBA got a nomination for Record of the Year, and six of the ten Album of the Year nominees are by women, including Gaga's uh, nomination with Tony Bennett. So five of them are by women solely, and the sixth one with Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett. So that's great to see. You know, they're always going to get something wrong. What are you going to do? It's the Grammys. If they're smart, they'll just have a lot of people perform music and have a really fun show. You know, I'm, t- I'm tempted to ask, if we were to, uh, you know, kind of say silly, uh, you know, puns or, you know, Tony Bennett publicly has Alzheimer's. So maybe they were thinking, you know, hey, he forgot that he won the other Grammy. So give him one now. Oh, my God. Would we oh get God. Joe Rogan numbers, do you think? <sighs> that's, that's not a good joke. <laughs> that's, that's not a, it's not funny. Not funny at all. <laughs> no, but the funny thing is. What? Uh, just so you know, for those of you listening, it's I can time actually- for big deal or big whoop, our segment <laughs> where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Sperling, what's our first story? Our first story. I was letting our listeners know that I could <laughs> keep see going. You, keep and the going. expression you on your face was priceless. <laughs> it was priceless. That's why we I- should switch to video. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay. You might recall, since we're talking about big deals and big whoops, Freddie Mercury and movies and music. Yeah, look, hey, everybody knows that smash it biopic Queen and Freddie Mercury. Remember that, Michael? Mm-hmm, we will rock you. Yeah. Uh, that movie cost $55 million to make, and it grossed, get this, a whopping $911 million worldwide. That was a huge hit. It is Woo! a huge hit. Wait, Not wait, wait, so fast. Wait, wait, yeah. According to accounting statements by 20th Century Fox, the movie is still $51 million in the red. <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, that's the response of screenwriter Anthony McCartan. He's a master of biopics, having received credit on The Theory of Everything, Darkest Hour, and Bohemian Rhapsody, all of which are Oscar-winning hits, legitimate hits, on the books and in the theaters. He also wrote The Two Popes, Net Points. Uh, now, the, by the way, that, that Two Popes, it garnered Oscar noms and the upcoming Whitney Houston biopic he, he wrote as well. That is called I Want to Dance with Somebody. And Wanna is spelled W A N N A, not want to. Okay. Uh, McCartan also had 5% net points on that Queen movie, Bohemian Rhapsody. And before you call him a fool for expecting net points, his deal was directly with Graham King and GK Films, which has a reputation, or at least did, for having accounting more favorable to participants, or should we say more, I don't know, realistic? The movie is now owned by Fox and then Disney, with some arguing his deal should be for defined net proceeds instead of, I'm not going to get into it, never mind. McCartney is suing, so is this a big deal or a big whoop? 
Well, it's a big whoop. It will go to court and they'll probably settle out of court before we get to open up the books and see how they tried to pretend a movie that cost $50 million to make and grossed almost a billion dollars is still in the red. I mean, it's just nonsense beyond all reason. Yeah. You know, there was a lawsuit uh, here that that it was the city of St. Louis versus the Los Angeles Rams and its owner, uh, Stan Kroenke, and the NFL. And they kept taking because they, they moved the Rams from St. Louis to Los Angeles. And they kept taking them to court saying, look, you did this. You didn't give us a chance to keep you here. Uh, and, and then we kind of built all these stadium plans for you. And then you moved anyway. So we spent millions of dollars planning to keep you here and you moved anyway. Uh, so they, they, they tried to get this case thrown out of court, the NFL and Stan Kroenke. And three times a judge said, no, no. The last time was last week. Judge said, yeah, yeah, no, it, 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 you know, the, the case is valid. It can go to court. It can go to trial. Within one day, the NFL and Stan Kroenke settled for $800 million. Why? They paid, they paid the city $800 million? <laughs> yes. yes. How did I miss that headline? Yeah. Wow. Why, why did they do that? Because of course- No, no, no. How did I miss that headline? Oh, because it happened wow. literally on Thanksgiving. It was like- they, wow. They, they settled the whole thing the day before Thanksgiving. And the reason they did that is because, of course, once Discovery started, all those emails coming out, <laughs> that yeah, would be bad. Yeah. And Oopsie. all it's same thing here. Once the emails start flying and once you can start doing Discovery, you know what? Let's just settle. All right. You know what? Adele's not settling, though. She, nope. you know, because speaking of musical acts, easily one of the biggest acts in the world is Adele. Now, you might be asking, well, how big is Adele? Oprah did a sit-down primetime interview to promote Adele's new album, 30, even though she's 31 and should have released it last year. Keep going, keep then, going. Well, okay. So 30, that release topped the charts all over the world. Oh, and Spotify changed its settings for her. You know, th this is the thing. Prior to Adele, Spotify's default setting when people queued up an album was shuffle. They would shuffle the album. Adele said, uh, 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 and Spotify jumped. Oh, and Adele's new album became the biggest selling album of the year in just its first three days. She moved the quote unquote album equivalent of 893,000 units in its first week. But since Michael doesn't like that whole album equivalent thing, here's the thing. That's 62, not 692,000 copies. That I can't even, I almost said 69 because I can't believe it. So many copies, 692,000 actual copies were sold. That's actual album sales, CDs and digital and vinyl. Get this, the vinyl industry is having a problem because they can't keep up. <laughs> There's a vinyl shortage and she's the cause of it. Big deal or big whoop? Well, she bigfooted and got 500,000 vinyl albums made up. So nobody, everybody else has been delayed for six months, three months, nine months, because they went in early and said, all right, we want enough capacity for 500,000 copies of this album on vinyl alone. Most of the sales, interestingly, were on CD. Oh. So like 300,000, the second biggest format was digital downloads. And the third biggest with about 100,000 and change was vinyl. So now as we go into the holiday season, I'm sure vinyl will still be cool. But interesting to see that CD still has life. And the single Easy on Me has gone back up onto the top of the charts. It was number one for four weeks. Now it's jumped back up for its fifth week, though not in a row. It is the first song to lead in airplay and streaming and sales since Despacito 
in 2017. That was four years ago and leading in all three, you know, areas where you contribute to your success. That's extremely unusual and very impressive. And you know what a massive hit Despacito was. So Easy Ami is a big hit. And she also has a song, Oh My God, in the top five. So big, big week for Adele. And getting the Spotify, why you would ever default to streaming, I mean, to shuffle when you're playing an album. That's obscene. Thank God they got rid of that. You can still shuffle the album if you want, but it's not like just the first default thing to do when you get to an album because that's ridiculous. So good for her. I could have sworn I saw a story that said, no, 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 it wasn't Adele. We, I have to go and look at the news items, but uh, I could have sworn I read somewhere uh, that, that they claimed it wasn't, it wasn't Adele. Uh but okay, well, I'll I missed to, that. But yeah, I do to, know it has changed. But I will say this: she definitely got credit for it, pretty much everywhere. So that said, it, it makes sense that it happened right uh, when her album came out. Now, speaking of albums and, and musicians, The Weeknd enjoyed one of those unstoppable career peak hits with the song "Blinding Lights." It only stood at number one for four weeks, but it remained in the top five for forty-three weeks, almost wow. an entire year. More. That's more than any other song in history, I think. I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. But it yep. also set the record for the most weeks in the top 10 and on the Hot 100. Now Billboard has announced it has dethroned Chubby Checkers The Twist and become the biggest hit of all time. They do accommodate for different eras, by the way, since the rules changes over time. You know, they, they, all these rules, they change over time, so they, they accommodate for that. But still, it's a big deal. The once unstoppable hit, The Twist, has been blindsided by The weekend. It wants a recount. It's going to court. It wants The weekend to settle because once the emails start flying, Chubby Checker will say, what's an email? And is this a big deal? Why are you making, don't make fun of people. What are you I'm doing? Not, Stop. I'm saying yes, Chubby Checker was from a different era. That was the, that was the, that was the point of that joke, which obviously wasn't a joke because you took, none of my jokes are jokes, people. They're all just reasons for me to watch Michael shake his head and go, what is he doing? And is this a big deal or a big whoop? Yeah, I mean, Chubby Checker's 80. God bless him. Uh, his website has not been updated. It still says he's got the biggest hit of all time. Good for him. Now, this does not include the pre-Hot 100 era, of course. This goes back to like the late 50s. Um, it doesn't go back into the 40s, 30s, and 20s. I imagine Bing Crosby's White Christmas is still the biggest hit of all time. And they're also probably ignoring holiday hits to a degree. And for years, holiday hits weren't even listed on the Hot 100, even if they earned being on there. They just said, oh, no, we'll put that on a different chart. The same way they took children's books off the uh, New York Times bestseller yeah, list because yeah. they were tired of seeing all the places you go every year. It's like, why? If it's a hit and people are buying it, let it be there. Anyway, the weird thing is, the lead graph of the Billboard article said in celebration of this milestone of the weekend having the biggest hit of all time, they were going to hold a ceremony, give them a plaque. No, Billboard will release a special collection of trading cards and a limited edition NFT collection. I threw up in my mouth. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Just, it's, we're going to try to make money off something that we've just announced. Yeah, it's, <laughs> and it's not even, we don't even have to do anything. There, we don't have to and, produce and anything. We is, don't have to manufacture yeah. anything. I'm sure they you did get it an NFT in. You I'm get sure an NFT. I'm sure with his cooperation, but nonetheless, it's... And the article included all sorts of links, but no link to the actual list of all-time hits. Very bizarre. Yeah, well, you know, look, it was the holidays. You know, it was a, a holiday here in the U.S. I'm sure they had uh, their... By the way, did you go to Wirecutter over the, uh, the, the holiday nope. break? Because, of course, the New York Times Wirecutter staff was on strike. Okay. That was kind of an interesting little media tidbit there for you. 
All right. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to try and refrain from jokes for this next one. How about that? Good. It, it's going to be really hard. Okay. Do you think I can do it? Yes. Okay. Well, last week we led with the news that members of IATSE, the International Alliance of Theater and Screen Engineers, I finally got that right, uh, <laughs> or stage engineers. Eh, maybe I got it wrong. Uh, well, they ratified their new contract. There would be no strike after all. It's true. There won't be a strike. And the deal was indeed ratified. But in fact, it was not supported by a majority of IATSE members. On a straight count of votes, the IATSE contract was rejected by 50.4% of voters. Only 49.6% voted yes. Apparently, it has an electoral college sort of thing going on where each guild, like say the Editor's Guild, they, they have a vote. And if it passes in the guild, then the entire support of that guild goes to the contract. And if it's an odd Tuesday in November, anyway, if a few hundred votes had gone differently, then two more guilds would have flipped in support and the entire deal would have been rejected. If just the editor's guild had voted no, it would have been rejected. And instead, most members of IATSE voted no. So Indeed, indeed they did. They yes, voted indeed. no, yes. So big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. I think this puts them in a... It puts everything in a new light. And number one, it explains why we were hearing so much grumbling. Well, in fact, most people didn't like the deal. <laughs> yeah. Number two, they should change the rules so that it's one person, one vote. It shouldn't matter what guild you're in. If you vote no, that should just count the same as anybody else. And if most people vote no on a contract, it should be rejected. Obviously, it was a razor thin majority uh, voting no. So there was like half and half. So nobody's kind of happy. And it does say, look, the studios have to recognize the members are not happy with this deal. They don't feel it went very nearly far enough, even if it was officially supported, even if a majority, even if it was 50.4% said yes, and 49.6% said no. Even if you flip the numbers, that's still a very unhappy membership. They need to recognize, that, oh, this is all done and we gave you everything you need. And so, no, no. You need to recognize that IATSE is in a bad situation. Most of their members aren't happy. They need strong support. They need to be able to push for more things. And we're not done yet. So, and it also puts them in a new light as far as what they're going to be arguing for this year, next year, and in three years when they push this through again. They've got to recognize this was not a deal that made their members happy. And we're not done. There's a lot more work that they need to do. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's the pro the, the reason they do this, of course, this whole like electoral college type voting thing where each guild gets uh, that's part of IATSE gets their own thing is because there are so many more gaffers and grips than there are, say, editors. So, you know, if the editors right, don't they're like trying to they're yeah. trying to downplay the importance of members who are in less importance. So they want the cinematographers to have more power than, say, gaffers. And that's well, not cool. In the end, if you represent them, you represent them all. Well, and what they're also saying is, gee, there's like 5,000 of you and there's like... That's okay. Us. So what? Then if you want to represent us, I don't care that there's I'm a gaffer and you're a cinematographer. Our votes should be the same. This is how... I don't like, care what state you live in. Your votes should count the same as everybody else. That's I, why we don't like electoral colleges. I wonder if this will cause a splinter guild to, to kind of... Well, it certainly shows the unhappiness and, you know, it's not cool. They need, to, they need to fix this. I think they should change the voting next time, long before they get to the next vote. And they should... Uh, you know, recognize that they got a lot, to, a lot they need to do to keep people happy. Well, okay, that sounds like it's very inside baseball, and that's not this segment. Of course, this is Big Dealer Big Whoop, but that wraps up Big Dealer Big Whoop for this week and moves us along into Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. 
we explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. Here's how these stories will affect you this week. People will not stop talking about streaming at all, ever, apparently. (laughs) That's right. Those cheaper over-the-top TV bundles you got to replace your cable subscription, they keep getting more expensive. On the other hand, content is getting more expensive too, or rather people are ready to make a ton of it. Bobby Flay re-upped with the Food Network for a lot of money. He was not happy when Guy Fieri got all that money. Disney <laughs> is spending $8 billion on content in 2022. $8 bi- No, wait. I meant to say Disney is spending an extra $8 billion on content in 2022 compared to 2021. Miss America is going streaming only. But the big network shows like Grey's Anatomy are capturing a lot of eyeballs when you add them up, and no one can agree on how to add them up as everyone tries to come up with a new rating system to outwit Nielsen. Okay, here we go. What happened with Hulu Plus Live TV? This is one of those streaming bundles. I have YouTube Live TV. Hulu Plus offers a bundle called Hulu Plus Live TV. What happened with that system? Well, I think... I don't know. What are they doing? Uh, well, they said no matter what, whether you want it or not, you're getting Disney Plus and ESPN. Right. And we're and we're jacking up the price an extra $5 a month. So Hulu, Disney Plus, and ESPN and a bunch of channels are now $70 a month. Or if you don't want ads, they're $76 a month. Now, they just raised their prices one year ago by $10. So it's gone up $15 in 12 months from $55 to at least $70. I'm trying to remember why I canceled my cable service again. <laughs> yeah. We're already up at $70. So now Hulu, Disney Plus, and ESPN on their own, that's $14 a month with ads. And, so, and you know what? Yeah. It's, it's the very same reason people didn't like cable because they were forced to have channels they never watched and pay well, for them. Swi- you can switch to, well, there's not that many, and you can switch to YouTube TV. It's a lot easier to switch now. I have access to Hulu TV. If I'm not happy with YouTube TV, I can say, screw it, cancel it, and switch over to YouTube to Hulu. I don't have a contract. So, so there, there should be a lot more churn. If they keep doing this and people are unhappy, Try out YouTube TV. Try out one of the other bundles. Everybody I know who's on YouTube TV loves it, number one. Number two. I don't love it, It's but it's it's fine enough. It's fine enough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number two, uh, that would allow people to subscribe to just Hulu or just Disney Plus because then they wouldn't. Well, you can. Right. But if you want Hulu Plus live TV, then you have. Right. To- there aren't. I don't think there are that many people who are angry about having Disney Plus and ESPN included. It's just they jacked up the price another five dollars. Okay. You know <laughs> what's happening with Disney? You know what they would probably say, by the way, is, well, look, what? if you got those things on your own, it would cost ten dollars. So we're saving you five. <laughs> it's like two things that I don't want for five dollars does not make saving ten dollars any better. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you're asking what's happening with Disney. The fact that, uh, well, a couple things. One, I, I think did we go over the fact that they didn't? They only, uh, you know, had two million more subscribers when they were supposed to have like, you know, an extra 8 million subscribers per. They felt short on their subscriber goal. Yeah. It's the, their, their subscription is slowing down uh, in terms of grabbing new people. I think this is the slowest quarter of the year, Correct. the one that they just reported. Yes. So we'll see what happens by the end of the year. They've got the Beatles documentary, Get Back, uh, and they're bumping up their budget for next year, aren't they? Yes. Uh, a whopping uh, $8 billion, in fact. Uh, and that's versus 2021. So they're basically saying they're going from like, what, $25 billion to $33 billion. So here's how this impacts you. You're going to see a whole lot more content. And better yet, <laughs> you better figure out what content you want. I don't know how you're going to find stuff on that that platform. Why? What's wrong? What's, I don't know. I'm just, a, you know, too much hard, content to watch. With... Too much content. Too much content. Yeah. Should they all be bundled together? I don't know. Whether you want to rather have it just in one thing where you go to Disney Plus and then you click on Hulu 
or ESPN or Disney, you know, is that easier than having know. three different apps? Maybe. Um, I just know that uh, I know what Disney Plus and I know what it means and stands for. What I don't understand is why Amazon keeps insisting people should stop calling Amazon Prime Video Amazon Prime Video. They're like, no, just call it Prime Video because that's really generic and meaningless and nobody knows what it means. So that's that's what we want to go with. Well, okay. So there's a couple things going on here. One, they might want to charge just for Prime Video, which they do, but they want to, you know, kind of make that a bigger thing. Make that a bigger thing. And number two, it's the same reason. I don't, but I thought the whole point of Prime Video was just as a loss leader to bring people into Amazon Prime. I thought the whole point was that they didn't want to do that. They really are selling you Amazon Prime and the video stuff is just a extra little teaser like Amazon Music. Oh, sure, we'll give you that too. So that would be a major change in strategy from them. Yeah, well, I, I think that uh, the biggest reason is the same reason that Jeff Bezos is no longer the the, uh, the CEO of the company, and that is because the Congress here in the United States, the government is really looking at them for antitrust reasons. And they basically don't want to say, no, 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 we're not that big. Look, we have, oh yeah, sure. Okay. We do own prime video and, oh, we do own AWS and we do deliver every single package you get, but, uh, we're not that big. And so they're really <laughs> just trying to downplay their own presence in this space. I don't think for consumers that Amazon prime video is such a poisonous name that they don't want to watch Amazon prime video and they'd rather just watch prime video. I think you're trying to market it and gain audience and you're trying to sell Amazon Prime memberships, <laughs> that's the primary goal of them. So cutting it off and just pretending I'm, that Prime Video is just called Prime, I don't, I don't see the advantage there. I'm not saying it made sense. I'm just saying I know what the company is trying to do overall. They've kind of... Well, does it make sense that they're moving Miss America to streaming? Miss America used to be a huge, huge draw on network television. Look at this week, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, 25 million people tuned in. Not as much as it used to be, but that's still a lot of eyeballs. Miss America hasn't been anywhere near that for a long time, and now it's moving to Peacock. It will air in streaming only. This, however, does allow them to do multiple days. They'll probably follow some Miss America contestants from start to finish, soup to nuts, you know, and have a series built around that, things like that. It does open up some more possibilities uh, that they didn't have otherwise. But it's happening in the context of when major networks are saying, hey, hold on a second. A lot of people are watching our stuff. A lot of major networks are boasting about the eyeballs being drawn by Grey's Anatomy, Station 19, La Brea, Big Sky. When you look at how many people have watched those shows over 35-day viewing, guess what? A lot of people are tuning in. A lot of people are watching Grey's Anatomy. They're not just doing it when it airs. They're doing it on demand. They're doing it on their DVR. They're doing it via Hulu or some other source or on demand later on a streamer. So there's lots of different ways for them to access those shows. And in over 30 days, they're doing it. And they're saying, look, a lot of people are watching us. But the problem is no one can agree on how to measure and who should be doing the measuring, right? Everybody wants to be the guy to come up with a new system. Nielsen, Warner Brothers, Universal, everyone is trying to develop a new rating system and hoping everyone else will embrace it the way they've embraced Nielsen for the last however many decades. Yeah, the problem is that, you know, if Warner Brothers has a rating system, Universal won't use it. If Universal has a rating system, Warner Brothers won't use it. Neither will Netflix. And Netflix said, okay, fine, we'll finally tell you. First of all, we'll do away with this whole like two hour thing or two minute thing where like if you watch two minutes of it, you've watched the whole right, series. That's a total, total BS uh, <laughs> yeah, metric. Yeah. They, they now said we will tell you uh, how many hours of, of an episode is or which yeah. is better? How many uh, how many minutes of a franchise have been consumed Correct. that week? Right. right, just like Nielsen has been pushing. They still don't kind of break it down culturally. 
You know, they, they or not culturally. Listen to me. They still don't culturally? break it d- down by I, country. I could be mistaken by that. Maybe it's they don't break it down by episode. I, I know that there. I, I think it's, it's they do break it down by country because our minutes are just North America on certain platforms. So the minutes we are getting are not worldwide. Oh, okay. They're just so what what Nielsen is doing is now showing just like top ten lists, I think, and then sometimes they're providing minutes numbers. I don't know if those are worldwide too, but again, it's just there's just. It's a wild west. I think we need transparency, and that means probably a third-party company. Even if they own it, even if it's Warner Brothers or Universal comes up with the idea, it needs to be run by a third-party company that everyone can agree on so that we know we can trust the numbers. You certainly want total viewing minutes per franchise. That's a decent metric. But I also think you want to know how many households viewed the entire episode or the season. You know, Get more granular. They don't want to do this, but if you want to tell us Squid Game is a hit, Tell us how many you know. Tell us how many people actually watched the whole thing. Actually, one of the one of the people- biggest hits on on Netflix right now is uh, a a not Squid Game, but a Korean. Uh, I think it's like a uh, another Korean series. It's a whole series, Cha Cha Cha, something like that. I can't remember the name of the the series, but it's a bigger hit than than Squid Games over the last uh, longer. Sorry, it's been it's been on the charts longer at a higher level or something like that. And no, 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 no. It's not been on the charts longer at a higher level. Otherwise, we'd be reporting about it because it would have been a multi billion dollar Squid Game had three billion minutes oh, one week. It's called Hometown- whatever show you're talking about did not have three billion minutes. All we have are the numbers from North America. So you're saying maybe this is a show that's a big hit oh, in, yeah. in Korea? No, I think, you know what? It's hometown yeah, you're, 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 This is what we need. This is why we don't need, you're trying to generically remember something. Now, if it was the number one hit in North America, it would have been reported on. Yeah. So it couldn't possibly have been number one with 3 billion minutes viewed, or we would know about it. Yeah. I so have to go whatever you're talking about, I'm sure it's doing well. And it's worth talking about, but you want to have consistent numbers for all these shows. We'd love consistent worldwide numbers, consistent broken down by country. We'd love to know when people stop watching an episode or a series and, you know, forget the overnights. Don't worry about it. Three day, seven day, 30 day, you know, and we want to include all platforms. I don't know why they can't figure this out. Uh, It seems like you should be able to get those numbers and you really need running reports. There's no like winner for this week. It's just a running tally that continues as they rack up episode viewies over uh, 30 days and frankly, six months and a year. So there's just an just a regular run of like, what's the biggest show right now? It shouldn't matter when it airs or where it airs. If Judy Justice on IMDb TV is racking up a billion minutes, that should be on there. If something in the afternoon on a daytime soap or primetime on Grey's Anatomy or on Netflix. You know, we don't care where it airs or when. We just want the numbers and we want them consistent. But until they figure this out, they're missing out on a huge marketing opportunity and a huge chance to tell people what shows are popular so more people can watch them. Well, a, a couple things. Uh, one, I, I think it was the most watched show in November. Uh, one of the most, I, I have no, to- No, it was not the most watched show in November or it would have been top of the list. Or maybe, I don't, I don't know. Anyway, uh, the one thing I do know is that the uh, Ted Sarandos has said he's going to spend $750 million on Korean content next year. Now, what makes that special? I mean, he did spend $550 million on Korean content, but that was over the past five years combined. Right, yeah, they're all bumping. 
they're all every week is a new announcement about the money they're spending in Japan, the money they're spending in the UK, the money they're spending in Korea, the money they're spending in India, because they want to get more subscribers in those territory. And unlike Disney, they don't want to see their subscription numbers stall. At some point, of course, you're going to reach maturation, and that's okay too. If you've got, you know, 200 million people worldwide subscribing to your service, well, that's a good amount of money coming in month to month. You should be able to make that work. You know, so you can have a good business. You can't keep adding people forever. Disney's not happy about slowing down too quick, but they're not dead yet. However, some people are. Yes. Like Australian Aboriginal actor David Gulpili. Gulpili, I hope I'm saying that name properly. Uh, he's a legendary actor. He died at the age of 68. And sadly, if you see a picture of him, you'll immediately recognize the man. I say sadly because it's an indication of how few roles are available for Aboriginal actors, certainly for most of David's life. In Hollywood, for many years, if you needed a little person, you called Warwick Davis. And in Australia, if you needed an Aboriginal actor, you called David Gopilil. This is not a denigration of their talent. There's a reason they rose to the top with so few opportunities. And he's done great work, acclaimed work in movies like Walkabout and The Last Wave for director Peter Weir. He had a funny bit in Crocodile Dundee. He was in the Ron Howard film Australia. He was in the right stuff if you blink and didn't miss it 10 canoes most recently and in, and in recent years he was in films like charlie's country rabbit proof fence a very good movie and a documentary about his own career so a great talent a great guy he broke down a lot of barriers and hopefully a lot more people will follow in his wake you may remember from crocodile dundee he's standing there and a woman's about to take his picture and he says you can't take my picture she says oh i'm sorry i'm sorry do you believe the camera will steal your soul and he said no you've got the lens cap on <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that was a good good bit. Uh, now, we also have a number of casting directors who died. Two of them, yes. Yeah. So we have Don Phillips, who died at the age of 80. He he produced, first of all, Melvin and Howard and Sean Penn's The Indian Runner, but he was a, probably remembered most for casting things like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Dazed and Confused. Think about all of the stars that came out of those two films. Those, those are those are the two big, big ones. He also did Dog Day Afternoon, Car Wash, Bingo Long and the Traveling All-Stars, uncredited work on Animal House. In fact, he roomed for a while with playwright David Rabe. I didn't know this. And David Rabe wrote the great play Hurley Burley based in part on their experiences. If you've seen Hurley Burley, you're now going, wow, <laughs> Don Phillips lived a hard, exciting exactly. life. Exactly. He is credited with finding Sean Penn, Mary Steenburgen, Matthew McConaughey, among many others. And theater casting legend Jeffrey Johnson died at the age of 91. You know someone's been around a long time when playwright Noel Coward gave them their big break. Wow. That's the case for him. He was picked to be the stage manager on Noel Coward's Broadway play Sail Away back in 1961. That helped make Elaine Stritch a big star. He never stopped working after that and co-founded the major casting agency Johnson Liff with his business partner, Vincent Liff. In 2003, they got a Tony for excellence in the theater, an honorary Tony, great for them. Together, they cast some of the biggest and longest running hits in Broadway history, especially during the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Cats, Les Mis, Phantom of the Opera, The Producers, The Wiz, The Elephant Man, Miss Saigon, Kiss of the Spider Woman, and Dream Girls. The best thing about those long running hits, they get to keep casting them. There's always new people going in the shows. It's like an annuity. You cast cats, you've got 15 years of work ahead of you. It's just like the gift that keeps on giving. Especially on, with those large, uh, th those large companies like Phantom of the Opera, where it's like, oh, and cats, and cats, yes. yeah. You got to You know what? First of all, Andrew Lloyd, they, he, Andrew Lloyd Webber, for Pete's sake, they must love that guy. Hey, another, course, another show with 50 people. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever heard of Mick Rock? 
I did, yes. I mean, he, just as a photographer. Right. Well, that's what he was. Yeah. Man, I guess yeah, he, he, was he shot a- everybody from what? Like, Zig- well, he shot Bowie during the Ziggy Stardust thing and, and Iggy Pop mm-hmm. and the Velvet Underground Queen, believe it or not, and Joan Jett. That's right. He was known as the guy who shot the 70s, uh, but he kept working right up to the end. He died at the age of 72. He worked with Janelle Monet, one of my favorite acts alive today, Snoop Dogg, even Lady Gaga. And I'm sure you know this song, I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. No? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you not too old for, you're not too young for Schoolhouse Rock? No. That's right. Dave Frischberg died at the age of 88. He's a jazz musician, a writer, did all sorts of stuff. Grammy-nominated singer, pianist, composer, a great and enduring and varied career, but Schoolhouse Rock. He worked on Schoolhouse Rock, a series of shorts for ABC on Saturday morning, and his greatest song that he took part in, I'm Just a Bill. It's a great n- one. N- Check n- out the n- video. N- if you Conjunction, junction, what's your function? <laughs> that was not his, I don't believe, but oh, okay. I'm Just a Bill is his crowning achievement. Uh, and check it out. Check the video out on YouTube if you've never seen it. It's, it's really fun, actually. That that uh, God, I saw, I've seen that so many times. Uh, and they still play it, by the way, for oh, kids yeah. today because my kids know that. Uh, my kids also know some of the songs that appeared in, uh, were a part of Stephen Sondheim's career. He died. They at, do? Yes. You know, West Side Story and things like that. Yes. Okay, okay. He died at the age of 91. All you have to do is list the shows. West, West Side, Side Story, Story, Gypsy, those two he did the, uh, the, the lyrics for. Then he started doing the music and the lyrics for Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Sweeney Todd, Merrily We Roll Along, Into the Woods, Assassins, Passion, the first show of his I ever got to see fresh, and Sunday in the Park with George, uh, a show that for some reason moves me so much I don't even know why. But when I see that show, it just is amazing. And someday soon, hopefully, Jake Gyllenhaal will be able to mount it in London, and I'll be able to go to that country to see it in 2023, probably, or 2024, when all this COVID stuff is over. He, He had a great thing going on at the end. Classic Stage Company is showing Assassins, a nice revival of that. Company is on Broadway, and West Side Story is coming out in movie theaters. So he died with all the attention and glory you could ever ask for. But what an amazing career. Is he an EGOT? He must be. He must be. He is not. He is is not. not. Never won a Grammy? No, he must have won a Grammy. Maybe not an Emmy. Because I don't think really he won an Emmy. He, he did write. He did run. He did write one special, I think, with uh, Tony Perkins um, that was on television. But I don't believe he ever won an Emmy. He certainly won an Oscar. He certainly won a Tony, and uh, he must have won a Grammy at some point. Um, but uh, yeah, there aren't that many people who are egots. He just did not do a lot of work in in. Uh, in television. Yeah. You know, that just right. was not his. So he won an Academy Award for Dick Tracy. He won uh, all sorts of Grammy Awards starting back with Company way back in 1971. And of course, he won numerous, numerous Tony Awards, but never an Emmy. Never an Emmy. Well, you know, uh, I, I mentioned that that I had uh, some late breaking news. Uh, and sat, oh, right. Sat, Who died? Yeah. So you might recall James Rocky. Uh, oh, yes, exactly. He is, was a former film critic, uh, and he was on this show, in fact, right yeah. at our start. And I had a little bit, I, I took a trip down memory lane. Uh, we actually had one of our most infamous episodes was a special that uh, was called Our Bloggers Breaking the Rules on October 16th. He and I took the gloves off. Oh, my God. What year year was that? That was October 16th, 2009. That was our first year. We were still in 
year one of this show. And mm-hmm. uh, he he wrote a a whole post on the, the new Federal Trade Commission rules that bloggers had to disclose whether they were taken on a trip for you know uh, you know junkets and 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 he came on the show and we debated ethics and after that episode he said maybe I shouldn't have a lot of guests on the show. <laughs> <laughs> Michael doesn't play well with others. No, we still, no, no now we don't have a lot of guests and that's mo- really my fault. But uh, it was Ann Thompson yourself. And uh, James Rocky, and he, uh, he was 53 years old. He he died over the weekend of a heart attack. Oh, how awful! And he he got out of the business five years ago. He was a critic that w- one of his big breaks was working for Netflix as their chief film critic when they still had film critics. They still a lot of them, <laughs> they were just a DVD service. And I remember that's when I met him. And he always had a funny quip and and was really uh, just. He, he was just a, a lot of fun uh, to be around. And he uh, he left, I think, about five or six years ago. He started a bakery. He was a very good baker. And then he went to work as an English teacher in the L.A. Unified School District. And I oh, think a part of uh, his kind of disenfranchisement with the film industry and being a film critic was in part all of the 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 – the problems that we pointed out in that very episode that, you know, the, the junket circuit he, he was frustrated with and, and he, he just eventually got so frustrated by it. He left. Uh, that was my understanding from him at the time, but it was very sad to read this over the weekend. Well, he had a career as a teacher. That's great. Uh, so sorry to hear his passing. It was 12 years ago. We had him on the show. Uh, so you know, it's nice to know our history travels back that way. Uh, sadly, we never had Stephen Sondheim on. But if you want to be on the show, reach out to us. Make your case. And, and you know what? Here's the thing. We're on episode 563. And I know Michael wants to end this episode because and I'm at an hour and 30 minutes. Yeah. yeah well, maybe an hour and 15. Uh, but, oh, but I was God. listening to some of these episodes, Michael, that we did way back when. Boy, did we sound like young whippersnappers back then. We seem to really know what we were talking about. But you know what? You don't want to miss any of these episodes as we age gracefully. So subscribe to us in iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they get podcasts away for free. You can usually find us. And if you can't, let us know. In fact, the way to let us know is to write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Call Leave a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. In fact, you can also reach us on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle or on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. That's where you can like our page, at least. Here's the thing. You can rate and review our show on any one of those podcast aggregators. It really helps us out when you do it. All of that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Giltz can be found every week. He's got a new and exciting website for us this week. What is this week, Michael? It's Tony Basil, the documentary.com. I'm sticking with this. Did you know she choreographed and co-directed the Talking Heads video once in a lifetime? Awesome, awesome video. That great hand chopping motion he does. That's Tony Basil. She is a great, great figure in pop culture. Somebody should make a film about her. Are you sure they haven't already? They probably haven't. You're probably right. But you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's 
coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work can be found. My work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. 